Hey, welcome back to the Pino and Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Redfern, coming to you from Marblehead, Ohio, in Rocky Point Winery, where we interview folks who are interested in Ohio politics, game changers, build up to the presidential election, and look me on to 2020 in the governor's race. We also enjoy a little bit of wine. Thank you for having us. You can always check us out on Spotify and Apple. Please share on Facebook. My guest today is somebody I've known for a long time, former legislator and a colleague of mine, Dan Dodd from Granville, Ohio. Dan comes to us now from Central Ohio as a, as a lobbyist and an advocate for schools, public education, and a whole lot of other things. Dan, welcome to the broadcast. Thank you for having me. I appreciate you coming along. Dan not only is uh, somebody who knows public policy quite well, and he, he also has a great deal of understanding of campaign tactics, opposition research, reading data, understanding what early vote, for instance, means. And in the buildup of the presidential election, I know that this is something that we're going to talk about uh, today. It's midweek, the week before the election. So having you on today, Dan, is, is a delight. Thanks again for joining us. Looking so forward to it. Tell us, tell us, uh, appreciate that. Tell us when you served in the Ohio House of Representatives. I was elected in 2006. Uh, mm-hmm. So I was uh, sworn in in 2007 and uh, was defeated in my attempt for re-election in 2010. So for four years, two terms, I served in the, what was then 91st Ohio House District. And who served in your seat prior to you? Prior to me, it was Ron Hood for two years, who I ran against in 2004 and lost to narrowly. And then before that, it was then Speaker Householder um, in his first uh, tour of duty. Uh, He was there for eight years. Yeah, that district at the time stretched from Perry County on over to what? Uh, Ross County, a little bit of Ross? It was Southern and Eastern Licking, and then all of Perry and all of Hawking, and then Eastern Pickaway. Eastern Pickaway. Did you make it ever make it to the Circleville Pumpkin Festival? I was there um, every year I was in office. On Friday night, they did the elected officials parade. Uh, So I was there every Friday night, and then typically a couple of other nights. Um, And before that, I was, when I was a candidate, I was there. How'd that go? Uh, back then, the the climate was probably a lot better than what it would be now. For? For Democrats. And so you'd walk in the parade and your friends and family would support you and, and yell uh, hello to you and maybe maybe some gentle ribbing from some of the Republican friends that you had in the same uh, parade route? That would be, that would be about right. I, of course, was one of the only Democrats um, in the parade uh, other than the, the local uh, elected Democrats. So there's always on, a judge. There's always on, a judge. Maybe there is. Sheriff. Right. Judge Long. Judge um, Long. Jan Michael Long. Yeah. Jan he was Long. the, um, still is was the, yeah. The, the, uh, juvenile judge. Yeah. And, and, and always a welcome guest if I could ever get him to agree to come <laughs> on the, uh, Pino and politics podcast. And, and when you were walking along that parade route, did you toss candy? We did not. The, the, Pumpkin Show has a very specific um, set of rules and regulations, um, so we did not um, we did not toss candy. In fact, in 2010, when I was in it, uh, they had a rule that said you could not, if you're an elected official, you couldn't have a campaign sign on uh, on your vehicle. So uh, I had had two different signs: one that said Dan Dodd, our state representative, and then one that said Dan Dodd for state representative. 
Um, the one that said four was mistakenly put on our truck and we actually had somebody in an orange blazer um, run up to the truck and rip the sign off of it um, as the parade was starting. And you so, remember distinctly it was an orange blazer. Yeah, they all, everybody who's involved with the pumpkin show committee all, always wears an orange blazer and you see them walking around the, the ground. So for, a, so, for a moment yeah. there, as you were describing this harrowing tale from a Friday night at the Pickaway County Circleville Pumpkin Festival, you said orange blazer. I thought, I didn't know they had Chevy blazers back then, but you were referring in fact to the, to the jacket that these uh, volunteers Correct. Much, much like the masters. Yes, it's, it's an uh, orange jacket instead of green. Interesting. Which Interesting. would be, um, you know, conducive with representing the pumpkin show. And so you're, you're an undergraduate and you, you have a, a law degree as well. And you're, you're now having to worry about whether or not to embarrass yourself in front of uh, volunteers sporting orange jackets in Pickaway County. Your parents must be very proud of you. Now, getting back to it. So you actually <laughs> ran in Larry Householder, then former speaker, because he had been out of term, his district. And you ran and won twice in that district. That was six years after redistricting occurred, four and a half really, when you think about when the new districts come out. It really, what I'd like to do, rather than just belabor the next 30 minutes with tales of woe from the Pickaway and uh, Circleville, excuse me, Circleville Pumpkin Festival, I want to talk a little, little bit about that district and how Democrats continue to win uh, six, seven, eight years after the districts are drawn uh, and why we, uh, as Democrats, lend ourselves to the belief that we can only win in certain counties and abandon whole swaths of the state. Your friend and mine, former state senator, state representative, Lou Gentile, formerly represented uh, you know, Steubenville, Jefferson County, stretching on down to Washington County and other parts of Appalachia along the Ohio River. And, and he, like you and I, believe that Democrats have to do more, invest time and energy into these rural parts of the state. How would you do it? What would you do it? What would your tactics be? Well, I know when I was helping to recruit candidates for the 2010 election, um, one of the things that we did was really go out and try to find people who were the best fit for the district. What's that, so, mean? What's uh, that mean? Well, basically what it means is that the, the most important vote that that person is going to make is for who the next speaker is going to be. So if they're going to um, if they're going to support a Democrat to be the next speaker, then there are certain things, um, certain issues on which you're going to have to give them some latitude to represent the district instead of their party. Uh, because as if, you know, you look at the maps right now and you look at the, the partisan affiliation, um, Democrats are in a deep minority in a lot of places where 10 years ago, they were the majority or they held the majority of county offices. Now they have trouble holding on to any of them. So when you're going out and trying to find these candidates, it can't be adherence to party orthodoxy. That is the number one goal that you're trying to achieve. It is instead who is going to be the most likely to win because they're the best fit for, for the district. And then are they going to vote for a Democrat for speaker? Um, yeah. And on some of these policy issues, you know, some of them are, are, are probably going to be non-negotiable, uh, mm -hmm. but other ones, you have to give them the opportunity to represent their district. And I think when you look at the job that you did and, and, and then Leader Beatty did, um, and um, 
you know, Speaker Butish, um, they went out and tried to find candidates who were going to win because they could um, have every opinion uh, mirror that of the Democratic Party platform, but that does you 0.0 good if they don't get elected. And so, so no that's security. why I think that's the biggest thing that, that if I were running the caucus or if I were doing candidate recruitment, I would try to find people who can win. No purity tests. No. Speaking of purity, I'm going to enjoy a red wine. I'm, I'm taken by red wines, as, as most of my listeners know, especially uh, red blends. I, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a real um, admirer of California reds, and I'm going to enjoy uh, a proprietary red, a 2017 vintage from the Central Coast, Monterey County specifically from Smith and Hook from Han Wines. It's called the label Smith and Hook. And it's a little bit of a Petit Syrah, Merlot and Malbec. Um, the, the Smith and Hook vineyards were adjacent vineyards that were purchased by Han wineries back in the late 1970s, early 1980s. And uh, the, the winemaker now blends certain reds from these lots uh, and this one, like I said, 2017 with a price point of retail price point about 21 bucks is is terrific. Um, I've just poured myself a little bit, and before I started the broadcast, I paired it with a little uh, in the season of the times Snickers bar for Halloween. And man, oh man, was that delicious! What are you going to have, Dan? Um, as you know, since since we've known each other for a very long time, I'm not a big wine connoisseur or, or a big wine drinker. Um, so I typically let my wife, um, State Board of Education member Stephanie Dodd, pick the wines in our in our household. And she's a big fan of the Federalist, both the Red Blend and the Cabernet. Um, so uh, we have the Cabernet right now. She's uh and and we both are a big fan of the of the mouthfeel and the hints of oak uh, that come out with it and so uh, you know the tannins are really working in that so um, that's yeah, what we're enjoying right now. Yeah, God bless you. You're trying. You're trying, and I appreciate that. <laughs> trying to sound like a snob. <laughs> using using the word mouthfeel make make you feel like you're a sommelier, but uh, I'm not sure you're going to get away with it. Maybe I'll I'll feature. Miller Light during our next broadcast. Now, yeah, I mean, if we could do, if it was, you know, politics and Pabst or yeah. something like that, then that would be more up my alley. Who do you follow on Twitter? Who do you like? Um, I wouldn't say I follow a lot of people, mostly, you know, political reporters, both in, in Washington um, and in Columbus. Um, but there are, you know, some other things um, other accounts that, you know, you need some humor injected in. So Sarah Cooper is a good one. Rex Chapman. Yeah. Um, you know, folks like that who can um, add a little bit of levity to what is what can often be a rather depressing Twitter feed when it comes to um, politics or or the election cycle. And and among the Ohio writers, in this in this case, the Ohio writers. Um, we've gone through a, a year or so of scandal within the Republican Party, House Bill 6, which, uh, which essentially creates a, a safety net for failing energy companies that's going to allow the force, rather, the, the, the ratepayers of the state of Ohio to pay the bills for primarily first energy, but not inclusively. 
um, among those who are going to receive uh, this uh, new branded capitalism is a coal fire plant in Indiana. So, so what are Ohio political writers missing when they write these stories? Is there, and as somebody, you're, you're quite talented in opposition research and understanding kind of the dynamic of these kinds of issues from a, from a point that most readers wouldn't think about because they're, they're not looking in places that you're looking. What are, what are state, uh, state house reporters missing? Um, I, I think what I didn't see necessarily reported all that much um, throughout the entire course of the House Bill 6 um, saga or the passage uh, of House Bill 6 um, was how it changed from when it was introduced to the final product. And you start to, when you look at the, the various amendments, you know, funding coal-fired plants in Indiana, um, funding coal-fired plants at all, for that matter, um, you know, various other things. I think what was not necessarily teased out enough was the amount of horse trading that had to be done in order to get this to a, a place where it could get through both the House and the Senate. And I think one of the things about House Bill 6, one of the, the difficult things about revisiting it is that you had to have all that stuff in there to get it through the first time. If you start, if you take, take it back, start from scratch and try to figure out a way forward, I don't think you're ever going to get there without adding all that stuff in. And so if you're going to add it in and it's going to look virtually the same as it did the first time, what's the point of even repealing? It? Yeah, and I, yeah. and I think that's where I didn't see necessarily all that, that much attention paid to that. But I think when you look at some of these things and you look at the legislators who were affected by it, um, either directly or indirectly, or their districts were, and you look at how they ended up voting, yeah. I think you can, you can tie certain amendments mm -hmm. or certain changes to certain areas of the state to say, oh, it makes sense why, why they would vote for it. I mean, it's very difficult to get some of the people in Southwest Ohio or Southeastern Ohio, you know, to care about uh, nuclear plants up along Lake Erie. Uh, and so I, I think some of those changes that were made, every little piece was, I think, designed to, to get one or two more votes that they needed in order to get it passed. Right. And I, I would agree with that. I also think that what, what we're not reading a lot about quite yet, maybe we will, is the impact that uh, organizations outside of energy placed on uh, the attention they placed on this particular piece of legislation and the impactful lobbying that was done by groups like the Chamber of Commerce or um, labor organizations, including uh, associated Associated Construction Trades, led by former State Representative Masalazi, they're very effective in urging legislators who did not live, as you said, near a plant, in trying to urge these legislators to to change their thinking and their mindset. That it, it, as if if they didn't support this bill, one, they would be turning their back on jobs, which is a fallacy. Has been proven out even this week when First Energy just announced that union contracts at Davis-Bessey, the nuclear power station in uh, Ottawa County, and as well as the one up in Lake County, those, those 
nuclear power plants, plants would not have to adhere to union contracts and pensions anymore because they're going, going through bankruptcy. The second thing is the Chamber of Commerce and the, the strong arming that the Chamber of Commerce has employed, at least in the past, in, in labeling uh, legislators as not supportive of job creation. For, for our listeners, you know, Davis-Bessey is a nuclear power station uh, between Toledo and Port Clinton that sits in northern Cale Township that over the course of the last 20 years has gone back to the legislature through First Energy over and over and over to decrease their tax burden whether it was their property tax or their, their uh, tangible personal property tax or uh, any number of taxes. And this was just the latest attempt to lower that burden. Back in the 1970s, investing in nuclear power seemed like a wise idea. Um, and, and First Energy, or at least its, its earlier uh, um, uh, iteration, um, Toledo Edison and, and a couple other um, energy companies, built, first, uh, built davis Bessey and then proceeded to lose their, their, their financial ass over the course of the last 20 years because of a lot of issues, primarily uh, increasing in fracking and, and other energy sources that are just cheaper right now. And now we're having to under, underwrite it with these fees. What davis Bessie has not done in Ottawa County is create a bunch of jobs. It's just not true. And Ottawa County and davis Bessie, davis Bessie's in Ottawa County, Port Clinton, Oak Harbor, these are not company towns like the old Goodyear plant in Akron is a, is a company town. Your grandfather had worked at Goodyear or your father had worked at Goodyear. And when Goodyear is under attack, as they were from Donald Trump, those families will react in support of the plant. It's not the case with First Energy. They never invested in the local community. There's not a, a, a local T-ball team named or supported by First Energy. And the contractors and subcontracts work at First Energy don't live there. I think that's one of the things that's not been reported as widely. And the fact that legislators, because of term limits, feel the pressure of these lobbying organizations more uh, acutely than those legislators that serve 40 or 50 years without the threat of being ousted because they served in legislature for, for eight years. Uh, it's kind of a long-winded explanation. And the state right house reporters would probably tell us, Dan, uh, they don't have the column inches to explain what you and I would try to explain to people because uh, our attention span is is left to 180 characters on Twitter, not to 4,000 words in a in a, an extended uh, research journalism done by the Dayton Daily News. It just doesn't work like that anymore. Well, and I think one thing that I would point out about organizations, and I represent as a lobbyist, I represent um, I'm both the executive director of the Ohio Association of Independent Schools. And then also as a lobbyist, I, I represent a trade association um, based out of D.C. Uh, regarding um, sports betting and the offering of, of mobile sports betting um, in various states where it's becoming legal. And one of the things you have to keep in mind is that not every member is going to have an opinion on every issue. Um, but when you have um, some of these folks um, who are very who have loud voices because the issue matters a great deal to them. Sometimes the association ends up saying, okay, that's what we're going to go with because this is really important to this member. You know, a couple of years down the road, another member may have an issue that's really important to them. And as a result, they may expect people to get behind them there too. Uh, so I, I think that's kind of the nature of associations in general, especially those that are looking to change policy in some way. Mm -hmm. And I don't necessarily know that it's, that it's hypocrisy or, 
or being underhanded uh, when you see a group like the Chamber of Commerce, for example, um, be supportive of House Bill 6 or oppose House Bill 6, you know, or whatever. I think it's really just a matter of, of there being some voices that were a lot louder, um, probably in their internal discussions, a lot louder for it than there were those who were opposed to it. And then that's kind of the nature of how some associations work and they kind of just roll with it. Right. Right. You know, the thing about wine, Dan, um, it's, it's organic. It's obviously it's a liquid in a, in a bottle captured by a cork or in the case of you and Kevin DeWine, uh, a screw cut, screw cap. Uh, wine is organic. It's, it is a fermented fruit and it changes over time. And, and I, I often tell you about the vintage of a bottle uh, that I'm going to enjoy. This is 2017. So this proprietary red has been in this bottle for three years. It was uh, oak aged for 26 months uh, and then set in a warehouse in central California and then distributed uh, across the United States for our, for our enjoyment. When you open up a bottle of red wine and you see a little sedimentation, what you should do is take that bottle and empty it into another carafe, open it up, allow it to sit for 20 or 30 minutes because the air, that oxygen, the air getting to that wine will, will allow uh, the, the, the chemicals, organic as they are, natural uh, presenting chemicals, to interact with the oxygen and allow the wine to, to open. So, so when you, you hear a, a wine taster tell you that the, they, they smell, for instance, hints of cinnamon or plum or blackberry, dark fruit. Uh, it's not because the, the winemaker threw some cinnamon in there. It's really about the texture and the, uh, the taste and the, the, the types of fruit used. The grape, I'm saying, in this case, the Syrah or the Merlot or the Malbec. And whether or not it was grown in an area that was warmer or drier or wetter or cooler. It was on the east side of a valley or the west side of a valley. Though all of those kinds of uh, of, uh, of uh, variables impact the taste of wine, but the most important thing that in, impacts the taste of wine when you when you have opened it for 20 minutes is what you're going to do with it. Are you going to to eat something? You're going to have a little dinner with it. You're going to sit out on the patio and maybe have uh, have some appetizers. Or maybe you're going to drink it alone if you're drinking it inside or outside during summer, during winter. All of those kinds of things impact the, the taste of the wine, how it appears on your nose, um, its uh, texture, as, you're, as you call it, the mouthfeel, as you're, as you're drinking it. And, and I'll remind you, Dan, finally, when you're, when you're drinking that Federalist, especially that cab, you want to you wanna sip it uh, or drink it like you would soup. Draw some oxygen over it so that you, even, you open it up even more so before you're swallowing it. Let it sit in your mouth and in your palate and allow the tannins to hit the back of your, the roof of your mouth, the back of the roof of your mouth and your cheeks. And then when you're, when you're having your Snickers bar, your cheese, you can really see how it balances well with whatever you're enjoying. See, that, is a, that is a lot of analysis into, um, into the drinking of, of wine. And I, I can't imagine, um, I will ever do that, but I, I, for you, Chris, I will give it a run. I'll give it a good run and, um, and actually try to do that uh, so, next time um, I, am, I am enjoying it. 
No, I know, I know you, you've, you've enjoyed your share of, uh, oh, I don't, University of Cincinnati basketball games. And, and you go in, in, to the game and you enjoy a, a beer. Do they sell beer down there at UC? They games? do. Okay, so you have a beer, maybe a hot dog. Now, you know that you cannot pair a hot dog with anything other than a, a beer at, at a sporting event because the surrounding, it's like Cracker Jack. How you eat Cracker Jack and what you drink with the Cracker Jack makes the, the, the Cracker Jack taste better. The same thing with wine. A lot of people are scared off when they, and I know you are too. You've, you've confided with me in the dark hours uh, of, of the evening. You'll, you'll text me and say, I'm scared of red wine. It's too dry. What do I do? <laughs> so, so you go to the refrigerator, you heat up a little bowl of rigatoni, and uh, you try it with what, uh, with what you could drink. And, and my goodness gracious, it will, uh, it will be a great experience. Now, getting back to politics, one of the other things that, uh, that we, we, we read a lot about is, is Larry Householder and, and uh, whether or not his pending indictment will, or his indictment will end up with, with a conviction. You, you know that district. You know what Larry's up against. Uh, given the fact that he's been indicted, given the fact that he faces dozens of years in prison, will he be reelected to the state house this uh, this Tuesday? Uh, I would be shocked if he wasn't. I mean, he's running against four four or five different write-in candidates, um, none of which have the name ID of someone like Charlie Wilson when he had to run as a write-in um, back in a in a primary. I think it was two thousand six. Um, so yes, he's going to be easily reelected and, um, and then I, I guess the house Republicans, uh, will have to make a decision in January as to whether or not they'll allow him to continue to serve. I mean, I think if there was a Democrat running, if there was a Democrat on the ballot, I should say, uh, it would be possible that he would not win. Um, but the fact that you're depending on somebody to get 51% or 50% plus one of the vote or whatever percentage you would require um, as a write-in um, against someone like that is, is a tremendously tall hurdle. And does uh, the Republican overcome. caucus, the Republican caucus, which holds the majority, and, and I predicted Democrats pick up five or six seats in this cycle uh, just because of the blue wave that I feel is coming at the legislative level, uh, it won't give those Democrats the majority. Uh, Republicans will still retain it. Will the Republican majority then remove Householder by a vote? A lot of people don't realize that, yeah, you're elected to the legislature, but if you were to do something to cause uh, embarrassment to the House, I'm not sure what the wording is, embarrassment to the House or the House's reputation, the House can vote to remove you from the body. Um, do you think that happens? I think they probably refuse to allow him to take a seat. I, I mean, I, I would, I, I don't know how you could let him continue to serve. Uh, because remember, I mean, there have been people um, in the past who have, who have done a variety of things um, that are not good. And um, they weren't necessarily removed from the house, but this is someone who um, is accused of and indicted for engaging in corruption that involves um, the very seat that he is currently occupying and, and will presumably occupy next session. Mm -hmm. So I don't know how you don't um, uh, refuse to seat him um, other than saying, uh, well, the people, you know, reelected him. Well, you know, th this happened after the filing deadline. 
um, at which point there, there couldn't have been a Democrat placed on the ballot. Right. Um, so it, it's not as if it was now, obviously you could blame Democrats for not having somebody lined up to run against them. But, um, I, I think that it's not really a, a fair situation to say, well, he, he was under indictment, but he got reelected. So you have to let him, let him serve because of the timing of everything. Um, it, it's, it's a unique situation. Now pivoting towards the presidential cycle and the election uh, next week. Any predictions here in Ohio? What should we look for uh, in the early part of election night, 7.30 to 8 o'clock in the early vote? As it's tabulated, the absentee votes historically are counted first in Ohio. Um, what are we looking for? Any, any, uh, any indications of, of success or failure among the presidential candidates and where? I mean, typically you would you would look at the the absentees and, and try to divine um, you know what it's going to look like overall um, in terms of the gap. I mean, 2018 and 2016, uh, there were gaps for the Democratic candidates after you know the early vote or absentee vote, uh, where you could you know look at it and see was it going to be enough? Was it enough? Was it not enough? I think this year it's going to be different because of the increase in the overall early vote numbers yeah. and then not knowing how much of that is what is called a cannibalization mm -hmm. of existing voters or, or people who you are expecting, or on the other hand, is it just an increase overall in turnout? Uh, so I think it, it would be harder to handicap um, this year than it would be in years past because we don't know what the final turnout numbers are going to be, although all indications are that they are going to be increased. And as you know, typically when turnout is up, Democrats do better. Um, so I, I would expect, you know, if we see big turnout and the margins or the percentages are, are roughly the same as, as what they have been in the past or increased for Democrats, um, I, I would think that that would be good. Uh, but we really are kind of flying blind because of the unique nature of the situation. Yeah, because, and I know there's been a lot of attention on early vote and enthusiasm, but, but you got to keep in mind a pandemic forces people to make decisions about how they traditionally voted. And I'm also worried about banking these votes, as you said, cannibalizing these votes and where they're coming from uh, and why and, and getting better understanding on that. I, I take a look every day at the Cuyahoga County early vote numbers, absentees requested, absentees sent in early vote in person, and as well as the number of people who have voted and those votes been rejected for some reason. They appear at the Board of Elections, they vote provisionally, but then you can appear at the Board of Elections and not have any ID at all, and you can be turned away. You won't be offered a provisional ballot in some sometimes because you don't have any of the basic requirements. They will send you home and you can come back. Now, there is a process that most, most Democratic county parties, larger counties, as well as the state party employees, where they chase these individuals, literally, and they encourage them to get their proper paperwork, their ID, proof of residency, whatever the, the rule is in that, in the state of Ohio. In this case, you have a driver's license. Driver's license shows who you are. You, you sign a piece of paper. Some people don't have a driver's license. And if you've always had a driver's license, you don't really think in the context of what you would do if you didn't have one. But there are thousands of people who are turned away because they don't have one. Uh, Democrats have something in place in these large counties to go capture those votes and voters over the course of the next five, six, seven days. 
then it makes up for what is now, I think I saw 15,000 people been turned away so far without proof of identification in Calgary County. Uh, there, there are, it's a three-legged stool in Ohio, uh, Franklin County, Hamilton County, and Cuyahoga County. If a Democrat does well in each of those counties, then the notion is that you're going to do well across the state of Ohio. Uh, any predictions about Donald Trump or Joe Biden? I, I would predict that um, President Trump wins Ohio. Um, I, I think it's going to be a lot. It's going to be a lot closer than I, I, maybe two or three points. Um, it's certainly not going to be eight. Um, and does that does that two or three point margin impact state legislative races? Is that enough think, to create six new seats opportunities for Democrats? It is because of how the how the maps were drawn. I mean, and, and that's a, a point that I've I've made in the past. Uh, is that you know when when the the folks who are drawing these maps who are you know in, in hotel rooms across the street from the state house, when they're drawing them, they're drawing them for the for the incumbents at the time, uh, and they're drawing them really in a snapshot of time where where you look at the past performance, uh, the partisan index of the seats in the areas that you're districting. But by and large, um, you're drawing it, the districts for the people who are there. You don't know what's gonna come down the road four, six, eight years later. Uh, and so what has happened, especially you look at a place like Franklin County, for example, or Hamilton County, uh, where you have seen, it's most pronounced in Franklin County, where those districts were drawn to be relatively safe Republican seats, and they were um, until essentially 2018 and presumably 2020. Uh, so I, I think that it's not unique to Franklin County. I think you'll start to see it in other places. Um, but those districts that in 2001 were considered relatively safe Republican or maybe you know lean Republican mm -hmm. um, are, are at best a toss-up for them, if not leaning Democratic. And that's just the nature of, of how demographics shift. That's why it's important to redraw the districts every 10 years. And that's why it's so important to be able to have control of the process when you're doing it, uh, because you can take advantage of the information um, as you collect it and as it becomes historical uh, and try to essentially predict what the next 10 years is going to look like. But as we've seen in decades past, um, some people have done a better job at predicting it than others. Um, Joe Biden win nationally, or or does he Donald does? Trump? I, I think he. I think uh, Vice President Biden exceeds three hundred electoral votes. Um, I, I I would guess. Um, you know, at the low end, he's at two ninety or two ninety one. Um, I, I think when you look at North Carolina, it's kind of a an odd situation in that you have a, a gubernatorial election which is not expected to be close. The, the Democrat is supposed to win handily. Then you have Cal Cunningham running against Tom Tillis in the Senate race. Um, Cunningham has had some um, relatively um, not good press recently, yet is still holding, his, still holding his lead. And in a couple of polls, it, it went up. Uh, so it's, it's a little odd to think that the president wins North Carolina, yet they lose the Senate seat and they lose the governor's race badly. It just, you know, the, the nature of how people vote once they start voting a certain way, or once they have it in their heads, how they're going to vote. Um, it's very difficult to get them to split tickets.
Yeah, I um, think, and, and I would expect that I would expect them, to, uh, vice president, to win North Carolina. And looking at Montana, just to bring up uh, Montana for a second, Donald Trump probably wins Montana by four points. Now that's a state. I think he won by twelve. And but but because of that, the next race on the ballot would be the United States Senate, and the sitting governor, uh, Governor Bullock, is running for the United States Senate. And he's very popular. Yet when you start with Donald Trump, even if it's one seat below, it's hard for voters to be disciplined uh, to go back and vote uh, against that, that party of Donald Trump, the Republican Party, and support Governor Bullock running for United States Senate. And so Bullock would lose, in this case, a very close race. Um, but I, I would share your prediction, as you and I have talked privately and, and I shared with a couple of statehouse uh, commentators, I do think we get to 52 Senate seats. Um, and, and it proves a couple of things as, we, as politics evolve in the country. Cal Cunningham's been, been mired in scandal for 30 days, and I'm not sure it's going to impact that race. Um, it tells you how Donald Trump has changed American politics. And what was, what was a deal breaker in the end of a career uh, and the behavior of a, a legislator or a senator now was maybe just a speed bump on their path to, to, the, to the election. And, and I do think that Joe Biden wins. I, th I think I'm going to stretch a little further. I think he gets more than 330 electoral votes, and I think it's an early night. And maybe that's just wishful thinking. Maybe it's the Smith and Hook red blend from Monterey. Maybe it's a number of things. But, but the, the, the campaign that Joe Biden has run through this pandemic has been uh, tremendous. Uh, and the flailing about, uh, literally and in, in geographically speaking now, of Donald Trump visiting Nebraska today, for instance, uh, tells me that they're worried. You and I know that presidential campaigns have holsters that ch track every day, different states, different regions, country, and something must be going wrong in Donald Trump's campaign for him to go to Western Iowa and uh, Nebraska, both areas where he, he won handily four years ago. My guest tonight has been uh, Dan Dodd on the Pino and Politics pod. Dan is a graduate of the Villanova University and the University of Cincinnati Law School, comes to us from Granville, uh, where he, uh, he is a lobbyist and an advocate for children. Um, the best decision Dan ever made, besides listening to me when I told him he should run for the State House in 2006 against Ron Hood, was marrying Stephanie Dodd. And Stephanie is a state school board member from Central Ohio, represents primarily rural area of the state as an elected member. And Dan is very active in state politics. Um, I want to express my gratitude to you, Dan, for, for joining me for the last half an hour. Thanks for having me. I've been, I've been waiting with bated breath for my invite to be, to be on the pod. So I'm glad that I, I got it. And uh, it's been a privilege and an honor. Well, it's a box that's now been checked. So. Uh, <laughs> So, so it'll never happen again. <laughs> Thanks I again didn't think it went that badly, but maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> no, Thanks again to Dan Dodd. This is Pino and Politics. Chris Redfern coming to you from Rocky Point Winery. You can follow us uh, on Facebook, on Twitter, as well as subscribe, Spotify and Apple and everywhere else you get your podcasts. We'll see you next time.